my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's world. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. Well, good morning, good afternoon. It's noontime, everybody, out here in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and... uh, I've got uh, my sidekick, Will Pierce, here, and uh, my engineer, Phil Kleiger. We have a great guest here today. We have uh, Helen Davis uh, Chapman, who wrote the book, uh, J.P. Madoff, uh, The Unholy Alliance Between um, uh, Bernie Madoff and J.P. Morgan. And uh, what do you think? It's going to be a good one, huh, Will? Yeah, she's a smart cookie. Yeah, she's a very, very smart cookie. Very brave woman, I would say, you know? Yeah. Could you please tell our audience, you know, about your background, your professional background, and uh, what you do professionally, uh, just to kind of give the audience your credibility? Sure. I've been practicing law since 1976. And in the early 1980s, a bunch of cases came down which held banks liable to their borrowers. And this was quite shocking to the banking community because... Bankers always thought they didn't have to answer to anyone but God. And the idea that they would be liable to a borrower was just inconceivable to them. And there was a perverse quirk in my personality which attracted me to these cases. And I began writing about them, and I uh, started a newsletter. I coined the phrase lender liability because it's kind of an oxymoron. You know, how can a lender be liable to anybody? (laughs) And... um, I started a newsletter which was subscribed to by about 3,000 law firms and financial institutions around the country. And then I wrote a book in 1990 called The Law of Lender Liability. And this has been the area in which I've specialized uh, in my practice. I initially represented financial institutions. And then one day, one of the banks, Manufacturers Hanover, the general counsel sent me a retainer letter. And it, it said that I had to agree that I would not ever be adverse to Manny Hanny, which I didn't have a problem with. But it said I also couldn't be adverse to any financial institution. So I called up the general counsel and I said, are you kidding? And he said, no, I'm not kidding. I said, well, it's been nice knowing you. Goodbye. And then I started representing borrowers against banks, which is a lot more fun. <laughs> and it's doing God's work. Amen. And so that's how I got into the field of lender liability. And that then just so your readers won't think I'm too smart, I had invested all of my liquid assets with Bernie Madoff. And uh, so it was not a good day when he confessed to uh, having not purchased the securities shown on the statements. And in, I then so um, started helping Madoff victims, uh, not, uh, not professionally, but just you know, as a human being reaching out to other people. And gradually, people began asking me to represent them. And so I've, I've had a practice since 2008, which is about 50% dedicated to Madoff victims. And I've represented about 2,000 Madoff victims altogether. And in the course of that, um, 
Bernie Madoff, after he was in prison, reached out to me because I was known as the representative of the victims. Yeah. And one of the first things he said to me was, well, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase knew all along what I was doing. And I felt so dumb that I, of all people, hadn't figured that out because Madoff operated his investment advisory business through J.P. Morgan Chase. And, of course, every one of us, if we have a checking account with a bank and we deposit all our income in that bank and we disperse all of our income to whomever we want through that bank, that bank has a glass-bottom boat view of our financial life. And, of course, J.P. Morgan Chase knew exactly what was made of was doing. And it turned out that there are internal memos going back into the mid-1990s where people at J.P. Morgan Chase were saying, you know, uh, there are very suspicious things going on in the account. And that didn't offend anyone at J.P. Morgan Chase. They just raised Madoff's rates. Unbelievable. So, 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 But Bertie Madoff reached out right. to you, right? Am I correct on that? Yes, he did. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so he, so Bernie Madoff told you about the J.P. Morgan thing. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, there's a lot of information in the book uh, because it's such an explosive topic. I was very careful to document my sources, uh, and the book is very, very heavily footnoted. And the only statements that I'm not able to source that way are statements that Madoff made to me. And of course, I've indicated that my source is Madoff. Wow! Wow! So, 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 how did that make you feel, Helen? And you know, how long did you have your, your you had your own personal money with with Bernie? Then, how long did I you? Did. How long did you have it? I mean, did, I mean, and how long does just from two thousand five on for just three years? Yeah, and so, and so, what did he send you statements like? And it looked like he had all these wonderful returns. Uh, you know, the returns weren't that extraordinary. In the period that I invested, the returns were about 8%, but it was short-term capital gains, so you were paying, you know, a 40% tax on it, on the gains. So it wasn't, you know, it didn't certainly knock your socks off to have that investment, but it was recommended to me by someone who, uh, whom I trust. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who is a very close family member and who is a very brilliant businessman in general, not in this specific instance. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I trusted him and I checked out Madoff and I saw that he'd been uh, approved by the SEC. They'd publicly blessed him and he'd been the president of the NASDAQ yeah, and yeah. he'd been in business <laughs> since 1960. So I figured, how can that be bad? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think the SEC or FINRA, one of the other ones, actually used his offices uh, during the 9-11 um, um, uh, tragedy. I, get, I, I think they actually they used his offices as kind of a um, uh, uh, as a transitory office um, during that whole crisis. But how much how much did, did people actually uh, lose with uh, with Bernie Madoff, uh, Helen? The total losses were. Uh well, the total losses were about $64 billion. And the people who lost that money were not simply wealthy people. Uh, they were um, a lot of pension funds, like the upstate New York Pipefitters Pension Fund had all of its money with Madoff. And people didn't realize their money was with Madoff. They would invest 
you know, through a pension fund in some union pension fund, and they would be in Madoff. So it it hit over 60,000 people. Unbelievable. Now, one of the things which and people, uh, and how can people get your book, by the way, Helen? Uh, they go to jpmadoff.com, am I correct? JP, jpmadoff.com, or it's on Amazon, either way. Okay, yeah. And, I, and I, by the way, I really recommend it to anyone out there. It, it's, it's, a very, it's a technical work, which, which, which it has to be because you, who you're talking about. But uh, it, it's, it's, uh, I have a whole bunch of questions just from the first few pages. But, um, and also, too, by the way, on, for the, our listeners out there, go, go onto the website, the JP Madoff, and then you have – <laughs> which you and I were kind of kindred souls. You have the wheel of misfortune. Could you please tell us about what that means? Sure. I wanted people, my, my passion at this point in my life is to educate the public on the, the fact that Wall Street enriches itself off the average person. And, you know, people don't realize that they are the victims of financial crimes. It's it's home mortgages, it's car loans, it's um, investment accounts. I mean, there isn't a day that goes by that someone doesn't call me up and say, God, J.P. Morgan Chase double-charged me on my investment accounts, or they uh, they hid a commission. Uh, you know, the, the ways in which J.P. Morgan Chase has figured out to steal from the public are so incredibly complicated and diverse that it's impossible for people to really deal with it. The best thing to do is to not deal with any of the major financial institutions. Yeah. But uh, oh, that's right. really what motivated me to write the book. And there are parts of it that are fun and easy to read, but there are other parts that aren't. So if anyone listening is actually going to buy the book, uh, don't get turned off by the, the kind of heavy legal stuff. Just skip to another chapter, because some of the chapters are easy to read. There's one where I compare... Jamie Dimon to Carlo Gambino, and I have a list at the end of the chapter of the qualities that Carlo Gambino had, and I check off when Jamie Dimon has the same qualities. So, yeah. So I don't think you'd be so, Helen. You're at home here, okay? But I don't think you'd be really to be uh, on the mainstream media. I don't think they, they, CNBC or Bloomberg hasn't asked you to come on as a guest, have they? Or have they? Well, you know, the funny thing is that Maria Bartiromo. Uh, her producer called me up one day and said, it's going to be the eighth anniversary of uh, Madoff's confession, and we'd like to have you on the program. So I said, great. And then I um, was going on a vacation, and I bought all of Maria Bartiromo's books. She's published three books, and I read them dutifully in the case she wanted to talk to me, and I could tell her that I'd read her books, yep. uh, which didn't happen. But um, anyway, I go right before the program, I email the producer who had contacted me and I said, can you tell me what Maria wants to focus on so I can be prepared? And yep. he never responded. So I get to the studio and they make me up. They take more time to make me up than I'd taken in my entire life. <laughs> and I said to the woman, my God, do you do this with everybody? And she said, well, you know, you're going to be on for seven minutes. That's a really long time for us. So I figure you're re a really important person. So I said, well, thank you so much. So I'm led into the studio, and there's Maria. There's a commercial break, and she just says hello to me. And I said, you know, can you tell me what you don't want me to focus on? And then we're on camera. So she says, and now we have with us Helen Chapman. She's the leading lawyer representing the Madoff victims. Now, Helen, can you tell us what you're doing to help the Madoff victims? 
And I said, well, as a matter of fact, Maria, I'm suing J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, of course, <laughs> J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, she's on opening bell. So J.P. Morgan Chase is one of their big supporters, right, and, and uh, advertisers. She said, suing J.P. Morgan Chase, for heaven's sake, what are you suing them for? I said, well, you know, it's interesting, Maria, but it turns out that J.P. Morgan Chase knew all along what Madoff was doing. And she said, well, what, what, why would they have an obligation to do anything about that? And I said, well, you know, that's a very interesting point, because in 1970, Congress enacted a statute which imposes on financial institutions the obligation to monitor their customers' accounts and to report any suspicious activities to the federal government. And I could hear, as I was saying this, I could hear some kind of weird noise, which is like a static in her earphone. And she said, and now we have an emergency commercial. And she, you know, the, we went off camera. And I said, God, I never heard the term emergency commercial. She said, we're finished. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that the producer was screaming in her ear, get that woman off camera. And at that, um, you know, I said, well, you know, did what happened? She said, well, we, we had to cut this off. So two men in black suits come and pick me up out of my chair and usher me out. <laughs> it, it, it's lucky I wasn't just pushed out of a 40-second story window. You know, and so that was your that was your interview with the money, honey. I guess so. It's uh, yes, yeah. So, exactly. so any event. So, um, and, and um, yeah. Now, the now I have a bunch of questions here, but the thing is, is that. You've testified uh, in front of Congress uh, once or twice about th about this stuff. Has there been any like, hello, what's going? You know, have there been any um, uh, Congress congressional recommendations or actions as a result of your research and stuff? You know, I was testifying about a statute called the Securities Investor Protection Act. If you go to a broker, you'll see that. He has a bronze plaque on his desk, which yeah. says SIPIC Insured, the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. And in 1970, Congress enacted a statute which was supposed to provide insurance to customers of SEC-regulated brokers, like FDIC insurance for bank depositors. And SIPIC is supposed to insure each account up to $500,000. So... Congress enacted this statute, which was really great. And the one mistake they made is that when they, in the statute, they formed the Securities Investor Protection Corporation to administer the insurance fund. And the, they provided that SIPIC would consist of the members, all the brokers. And they allowed the brokers to determine how much they should each contribute each year to the insurance fund. Okay. So, of course, guess what happened? Starting in 1994, uh, all the Wall Street firms decided that the amount that should be contributed to the insurance fund is $150 a year. That's it? $150 <laughs> a year per firm. You're kidding so me. So Merrill Lynch, let's say that Merrill Lynch has... 20 million investment accounts around the country. They write one check to SIPC for $150, for which they can then tell every one of their 20 million investment advisory customers, congratulations, your account is insured up to $500,000. So when I started helping Madoff victims, 
And of course, Madoff was a member of SIPC, and you know, he his, every invoice said that your account is SIPC insured. When I started helping Madoff victims in late December 2008, all of them said to me, "Well, thank God, at least I'll have the five hundred thousand dollars in SIPC insurance." Well, guess what happened? When Madoff confessed, SIPC didn't have enough in the fund to pay five hundred thousand per customer. Now. The cu- it wasn't 64,000 customers. It was only per account. Yep. So there were, t- there were a total of about 5,200 accounts. Yep. But they didn't have the money to pay that. So they, SIPC appoints a trustee who officiates over the bankruptcy. And they got this trustee to convince the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that the statute doesn't mean what it says and that when someone defrauds his customers by not buying the securities shown on their statements, then you don't get SIPC insurance based on the last statement, which is what the statute expressly says. Instead, you get SIPC insurance based on your net investment over the life of your account. And the way the trustee has defined that is, let's say that in 1963, my grandfather put $100,000 in Madoff. Yep. And my mother then passed that account on to me. So let's say that by 2008, 2006, um, my mother dies, I inherit the account, and it's now worth $6 million. I have to take out $3 million to pay estate taxes. So I'm left with $3 million in the account. Madoff confesses, and Irving Picard, the trustee, sues me to pay back $2.9 million. Why? Because my grandfather in 1962 put in 100000 and I took out $3 million to pay the estate taxes. Unbelievable. So, so now you got to be kidding me. Now, now Helen, I, I read a lot of stuff. I didn't understand this, but SIPC, they were only contributing $150 a year? I mean... As, as, well, it changed. In, in, in March of 2009, they made it one quarter of one percent of revenues, which is what it should have been all along. But but prior to that, and I'm saying prior to 2009, you're saying that they only contributed 150 bucks. Yeah, Goldman Sachs would write one check for 150 dollars, and then tell all of its customers that their accounts were insured up to 500 thousand. That's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, it, 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 tell me about it. <laughs> this, is, this is what I testified in Congress about, but nobody was offended by it. It's you know, it's just I just I, I it's just it's crazy. Um, we're gonna have to take a break in a couple minutes, Helen. But 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 now, but I want to ask you, okay, um, if you if you could now, but Bernie, he had all this cash. He had uh, which. The one of the amazing things, Helen, it amazes me. But it, it was really kind of a rinky-dink operation when you think about it. You know, rem, you know. Uh, um, but he had four or five billion sitting in a in a in a, in a seven hundred three account. I guess it was called. Could you tell our audience what the seven hundred three account was with J.B. Morgan? Sure, Madoff had uh, he had two different activities going on in one entity. It was called Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities LLC. And they, he employed about 200 people. Of the 200 people, 188 were engaged in 
a legitimate trading operation. Madoff was the single largest trader of securities in the world. He did trades equal to 10% of the daily volume on the New York Stock Exchange. He was bigger than J.P. Morgan Chase, bigger than Bear Stearns, bigger than Merrill Lynch. That was a completely legitimate business. Okay. On a separate floor, he had 12 people working in what he called his investment advisory business. And there he was taking money but not purchasing the securities shown on the customer statement. Now, when the trustee filed the case, of course, he wanted to avoid having to pay SIPC insurance because he was appointed by SIPC and he's been paid by SIPC. He's been paid, his law firm has been paid over $1.3 billion, of which he personally gets 20%. So he had every incentive to do whatever SIPC wanted. And SIPC didn't want to pay the insurance as required by the statute. So Madoff, according to Irving Picard, the trustee, never purchased any securities for his customers. And that was the justification for the Second Circuit's holding that people are not entitled to SIPC insurance. However, it's now turned out that Mr. Picard, the trustee, is almost as much of a fraud as Mr. Madoff because, in fact, Mr. Madoff, whom I've now deposed for several days, testified that, indeed, he did purchase securities with the customer's money. Uh, He didn't buy every security that showed up on the statements, but he invested billions of dollars using the customer's money in, in Treasury bills, which were the most common securities shown on the statement. And in fact, his company also purchased the Fortune 100 company stocks that occasionally showed up on the statement. So the fraud is very different from what the trustee has represented. It's, it, it's like peeling an onion. It's, it's been such a complicated case. But hopefully someday the truth will come out. It's very difficult to get the truth out because Nobody will publish anything that Irving Picard doesn't want published. Yeah, and Helen, I'm, I'm ready. To, uh, my sidekick, Will Pierce, has a couple of questions for you. But uh, one of the things which amazes me, too, and everyone in the United States or amnesia, everyone forgets this stuff, but uh, J.P. Morgan was actually uh, marketing um, some of Madoff's funds. Uh, they call it, was the, you call it the, the equity exotics or whatever it was, and then they had all those feeder funds and then, Hopefully, maybe we can talk about Ezra Merkin and all those people later on. But uh, could you? So everyone was selling stuff for Bernie, and no one, no one did any due diligence. Uh, it, am I correct? I mean, was was J.P. Moore? Well, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of complicated. It's how much due diligence do you do if you call up Merrill Lynch and you tell the the broker to buy you a hundred shares of IBM? You know, it shows up on your statement. Uh, but, how, you know, nobody physically buys securities. So how do you know at Merrill Lynch that someone actually went into the market and bought those securities for you? You don't know. And in fact, according to Madoff, um, he had the right. He was a market maker, yeah. and he had the right to sell unlimited shorts. So he testified when I deposed him that there was nothing illegal about his sending a, a statement to someone which said, congratulations, you have three shares of IBM and four shares of AT&T and 10 shares of General Motors, when he actually didn't buy those securities because no brokerage firm nowadays 
buys the securities and puts them in a cubby hall for you. Yeah. You know, it's, we're, it, there were no certificated securities. There haven't been for decades. So all of this is done really on the basis of the strength of the broker. And yeah, yeah. how can anyone check anything that's, that's represented to them? Yeah, and it's just, it's, I just find it incredible. Will, you had a question? Yeah, so this is, Helen, this is a sort of a personal issue for you. Um, uh, you have, amongst the thousands of uh, pe- um, people that have been defrauded by uh, Madoff, do, do you recall uh, Bard College? Uh, I, gave, uh, I, I give money to them every <laughs> year, and uh, I know some of that money ended up in, uh, in, with Madoff. Yes, I recall reading that. There were several, there were, there were a lot of charities that lost, a lot of charities and private foundations that lost a lot of money through Madoff. Hmm. Yes. And, and you said, uh, you said that um, J.P. Morgan is, chases in 50% of American homes. How'd they get there? They do business with 50% of American uh, families. Well, they have mortgage loans, they have car loans, they have uh, 401ks, they, they have all kinds of products that they sell to people. Hmm. And, and where's the, um, how are they getting people uh, with the mortgages? How do they do that? What's the, uh, what is, what is their mechanisms for? Um, unjust, well, unjust you know, it changes things? every day. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that they've made money on is they sell um, various kinds of insurance uh, in connection with the mortgages, and they don't actually provide the insurance. Uh, they just accept the premium for it. Um, you know, they, they, well, you know, I, I talk about this in my book. Um, you know, I'm going to go back for a second because Barry had asked me what was on my website. I wanted to depict for people what J.P. Morgan Chase has become, which I think is like the largest organized crime family in the world. And on my on the homepage at the bottom of jpmadeoff.com, I have a what I call the wheel of misfortune, which is a roulette wheel. And each slice of the roulette wheel is a different judgment. So if you click on any slice, if you click on the roulette wheel, it spins, and then it stops at a slice, and then it says, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase paid fourteen billion dollars to the government in satisfaction of such and such. And I quote from. J.P. Morgan Chase's SEC filings. So in the last five years, J.P. Morgan Chase has paid settlements or fines in excess of $38 billion. But one of my favorites in this roulette wheel is uh, a fine that J.P. Morgan Chase paid to settle a claim where it had written to its credit card holders and said, we have great news for you. We have a new service that we can provide, which will protect your identity. And the fee is X dollars per year. And if you're interested, just you know, send us the money or authorize your credit card uh, charge to it. So they got a lot of people responding, what could be better than having J.P. Morgan Chase protect your credit identity? All these people paid the money, and that was the end of it. J.P. Morgan Chase had never <laughs> developed the second part of the business plan, which is how do we provide a service in exchange for the fee? They thought it would be attractive to sell that to customers, but they didn't think that they had an obligation to then provide the service. 
So one of the settlements in my roulette wheel is a settlement for this fraud. How does that happen? How does a how does a financial institution the size of J.P. Morgan Chase do something like that? The only way it happens is there is a complete absence of moral standards at J.P. Morgan Chase. They do whatever they can do to make money, and right and wrong don't enter into it at all. Well, are they overseen by the uh, OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of Currency? They are. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, but the that might explain some things. Yeah. So, and the (laughs) and the and the FTC and the SEC and the whole thing. As a matter of fact, as as bank, you know, do they even have to have? um, I I I mean, I I sent you my books. I I I wrote about the um, repeal of Glass Siegel. Okay, do banks even have to? um, I don't even know if they have to set up as their own. Broker-dealers now. Does J.P. Morgan have a broker-dealer now? I'm not sure. I believe they do, sure. Yeah, but sure. But a lot of the stuff that this is exempt. But um, uh, one, one question is that, um, so they have the 703 account, which I guess it was like just the main account for, for Madoff, um, and they kept, you know, like 4 or $5 billion. And, of course, they love it because they can, you know, leverage that, that you know, to $40, 50000000000 billion. So, any bank, I mean, would uh, would love to have that type of a an asset, uh, which is you know, is that one of the reasons why J.P. Morgan held onto the line money for so long? Well, remember um, years ago, if you put ten thousand dollars in a new bank account, they give you a toaster. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think you get if you keep six billion dollars on deposit at J.P. Morgan Chase? Now, Jamie Dimon joined J.P. Morgan Chase in 2004, and at that point, Madoff was keeping four to six billion dollars on deposit. Yeah. And what was one of the first things that Jamie Dimon did? He set up um, the chief investment office in London so that J.P. Morgan Chase could speculate with banks with the bank's deposits. And that led to the massive losses in the London Wales situation. But her, here was Bernie Madoff. I mean, the, the customers of Bernie Madoff were actually providing the seed money for this London Whale operation. Oh, unbelievable. Just, I was unaware of that. So the London Whale trade, which is, how much, what did they lose? Uh, Six billion, 12 billion? How much did they lose in that one, Helen? You know, they never disclosed the full amount. They said that they lost $6 billion, but... They never disclosed the full amount. That was a tentative number. Uh, and, of, and, of course, when Jamie Dimon testified in Washington, he lied to Congress about that situation because he knew, he knew about the losses. The internal J.P. Morgan Chase memos show, the emails show, that he was being alerted as to what was going on with the positions that the chief investment office had for months before he disclosed it. You know, I just find it incredible, Helen, because I have a, you know, a small advisory firm. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, I'm always subject to audit and, and, I, and I have been audited because of the books I've written and stuff. But, um, you know, I have to, I mean, in the anti-money laundering stuff, which we have to go through a little firm, it's just incredible. Um, so I, I just I'm just amazed that uh, a, a bank the size of J.P. Morgan, um, it sounds like everyone was at. Asleep at the wheel, and he also had a um, 
a, like an account manager, Richard Casa, is that correct, or something like that? I mean, Richard did, Casa was was Madoff's account manager. Yes. You, you know, so, um, so it's it's any event. So the um, uh, so what keeps you going on this stuff, Helen? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, and I thank you for your courageous efforts here. And uh, when you read my books, you, we're kind of on very much on the same page. Uh, what keeps I have you... been reading them, and we definitely are. <laughs> so, what what do you what motivates you to keep going on this? Because obviously, um, um, you know, it's it, it just to help people. I mean, for your kids, your grandkids, uh, why are you doing this? You know, I I'm not a religious person, but I feel that um, I have an opportunity to help people, and I want to help them. I feel I know something that's important for people to know to protect themselves financially. I feel that the average American is is being financially raped, and Amen. if they were more educated, they could protect themselves. Uh, there's no one in Washington who's going to help the average American because everybody's been uh, signed, sealed, and delivered to the to the Wall Street firms. So people have to help themselves, and I feel that because of the experience that I found, the situation I found myself in, I've learned facts which it's important for people to know. So I have a kind of fervor to pass this information on to help people. Yeah, because, um, you know, it's just, uh, what do they say when uh, Hitler was, uh, I hate to say it, but when Hitler, they said, well, you know, the, the Catholics aren't bad people, and then, you know, these people aren't bad, and then they took the Jews. I just, I mean, someone has to say something. Am I correct? I mean, I just, um, uh, you know, if you have a conscience, um and do you read the journal, by the way? The, uh, I, I'm a habitual reader of the Wall Street Journal. Do you read that? Have you read the, did you read the journal today, Helen? I yes, I did. All right. Did you see that article? I, I flipped because, um, and I've been, because I p- first picked this up on Bloomberg, but did you see that um, the subprime auto thing, it, it's not as big as the uh, uh, home mortgages, thank God, but it's getting up there. And it's just the same old stuff again. I mean, you know, and, and and the journal it's it's not Helen or Crazy Barry speaking, but the journal documented how Wells Fargo once again, J.P. Morgan, Shank of, Bank of America, um, Morgan Stanley, um, J.P. Morgan, they're all p- providing wholesale funding for these subprime lenders, and they're and they're re- recirculating it to private equity firms. I mean, has anything changed? Again. again? I mean, nothing it- has changed because the point is that the bankers have been rewarded financially for what they've done, and they've been given uh, absolute immunity from any criminal prosecutions. They, they commit one, they indisputably commit one crime after another, and nobody's prosecuted for it. So, you know, the we've let a bunch of wild Indians run the country. It's insane. Well, well, Helen, um, is it are, are the, is the average American a little bit at fault? I mean, because they see these... Um, uh, guys making tons of money, and and they, uh, you know, they know they're kind of scoundrels, but they also admire them as well. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people figure yeah, if they can get away with it, you know, that's that's kind of the American way. So is isn't well, part of the moral failure y- failure the rest of the population? You know, here's the thing: I think that the the line has to be drawn when you commit a crime. 
the all the major banks have pled guilty to criminal violations of the Sherman antitrust laws with respect to fixing LIBOR, with respect to fixing the foreign exchange rate. Uh, they have criminally conspired to fix utility rates. There's no dispute about this. The problem is that what happens is if they if the evidence is indisputable that they've committed one of these massive crimes, the penalty is that they have to disgorge a small percentage of the profits. They never have to disclose how much money they've made from that criminal conduct. And then they move on to some other statute that they violate. So, you know, we're, we're living in an era where financial crime is blessed. And I blame Eric Holder for this. I blame Obama for this. I mean, Donald Trump hasn't done anything to improve it, but, you know, certainly <laughs> Obama and Eric Holder should have prosecuted uh, the people who were responsible for the financial crimes. We have a RICO statute, which was enacted in order to get the leaders of the organized crime families, the Carlo Gambinos of the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Well, the, that statute is perfect for someone like Jamie Dimon. And one of the chapters in my book lays out the crimes that he could have been prosecuted for. But not, not only isn't he prosecuted, when he goes to Washington, you'd think he were Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. So, so uh, Helen, when you said um, uh, J.P. Morgan noticed this whole bunch of money in their bank accounts and, and it wasn't being used to buy any stocks and they realized something was going on how, uh, that maybe shouldn't be going on, how did they charge that client more? Well, they probably didn't charge him anything at all. Or, yeah, I mean, because yeah. they were using the money, you know, as a balance sheet asset. Am I correct, Helen? Because, you know, because, well, yeah. Or they weren't paying what, them interest? What was going on in um, from, like, 1992 through 2001 was that Madoff had a massive money laundering scheme that he was doing with one of his closest friends, a man named Norman Levy, who was in the, very big in the real estate business in New York City. And they had a scheme going where, let's say, in the month of December 1998, Madoff would give Levy 31 checks, and each check would be for the amount of $989,463.14. There would be 31 checks for that identical amount of money, one for each day of the month of December. And then Levy would give Madoff 31 checks for the month of December in, ident in the identical amount. And this went on for 12 months every year from 1992 through 2001. The total involved, the total amount of money involved was $106 billion. In, in 2001, the total amount that was just transferred in that one year was $36 billion. Now, all of a sudden, a billion dollars isn't a lot of money. But in 2001, if, if you had a, a business transaction that involved a billion dollars, you were, you were the headline in the Wall Street Journal. So imagine $36 billion being transferred from one account to another, both at the same branch at JPMorgan Chase. And JPMorgan Chase never did anything about it. They noticed it internally. They saw that it was wrong. And they all they did was they said, you know what? We're not going to pay interest on any of this money. Um, that, that was what they did with that. 
So, so um, that makes him complicit. Of course, it does. But but it, but the thing is, if you commit a crime and nobody prosecutes you, then you've you've gotten away with it. Yeah, it's uh, and I have to talk to way. It's the uh, uh, I'll have to talk to you offline about something else. Uh, but the uh, um, but how how is uh, I mean, you're kind of um, you're you're a brave woman, Helena, and uh, what does your family think? They, they say uh, 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 your grandson or what? What, is, what do they think about? It? They must be very proud of you. I mean, what, or, or, or your peers, your fellow lawyers, because. Don't you make more money representing the institutions than working for you know victims? Am I correct? Yeah, but life isn't just about making money. It's to me, for me, it's about doing what I think is the right thing to do. Yeah, that's. Uh... But but it is very funny because when when I was publishing the book, um, one of my dogs died, and I was devastated by it. I had a golden lab, and my daughter insisted that I get a. Um, Doberman Pinscher, and I'd never had a Doberman before, and she just felt concerned. She wanted me to have a dog that would protect me. <laughs> so now I have a Doberman, who's the sweetest dog you've ever met in your life. But anyway, she looks intimidating. But uh, yeah, did you did you take your book to any any uh, publishers like Forbes or something? You know, nobody would touch it. Yeah. Um, it's it's such an explosive subject that nobody would touch it. Yeah, yeah. So no. Figures. That, that figures, you know, and and uh, it's just, it's it's we're just a celebrity culture now. It's just, uh, uh, you know, it's um, it's it's incredible. Are we coming to the end of our line, Phil? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to know, Helen, did you think that uh, Robert De Niro did a good job as Madoff in Wizard of Lies? I thought he did do a good job. Yeah. I thought he did do a good job. He did do a good job. Okay, I haven't seen it yet. We'll have to see it. What is that? Is it a movie? Is there, is it's a movie about Madoff that they came out with? It's a TV movie from last year. Yeah, uh, yeah, to... it was good. It, it was, was good. Well, you know, Helen, we've come to the end of the line here, and uh, we'll be in touch offline. Uh, but uh, so grateful to have uh, met you on the, over the phone. And uh, by the way, I sent you some more information. By the way, J.P. Morgan is not the largest largest one in fines. It's just gorgeous. But it's actually. Bank of America is actually higher than J.P. Morgan, if you can believe it. Um, but you know, you're right. I could have written my book about <laughs> Goldman or uh, Wells Fargo or Bank of America or Citibank. They're all they're all up there competing in crime. Yeah, or Barclays or whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, or Deutsche Bank. Deutsche. Oh, that, <laughs> you have all. That's, Don't get Barry started about that, Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank. Is, is that, that, I mean, <laughs> that, that that's a house of cards. You know, it's. Um, but anyhow, Helen, uh, how can people find out more about you? Um, they, we, what websites can they go to? APMadeoff.com. And um, uh, thank you, uh, Helen. Thank you so much. Uh, God bless you. And keep fighting the good fight and keep pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. And uh, we'll be in touch. And uh, Great. Thank you so much for having me on the program. God bless you. Uh, uh, God's peace. Bye. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?